Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. There's a lot of things happening, including apparently a new war strategy, or at least a purported war strategy from the Kremlin. Who better to talk about all of this with than our guest today, our very special guest today, Francis Fukuyama is senior fellow at Stanford University's Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies. Francis Fukuyama's most recent book is Identity, The Demand for Dignity and the Politics of Resentment. And he has a uh, new book out coming out uh, in May in the United States, Liberalism and Its Discontents. Frank, welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. Thanks very much for having me, Charlie. I'm a regular listener, by the way, so you should know that. Well, I'm flattered. I really am. So uh, let's start with what's happening right now, and then then later we'll pull back for the big picture. This morning, Russia's deputy defense minister came out and said the Kremlin's decided to, uh, in his words, uh, fundamentally cut back military activity in the direction of Kyiv in order to increase mutual trust for future negotiations to agree and sign a peace deal with Ukraine. Uh, Ann Applebaum uh, just tweeted out, uh, well, in other words, they're retreating. So give me your take on this. You've had a very optimistic uh, perspective on how this war is going from Ukraine's point of view. But what do you make of this announcement this morning from Moscow? Well, Anne is absolutely correct. The Russians are lying about this as they've been lying about most things. Uh, they're not voluntarily giving Ukraine a chance. They're, they've actually been defeated in the area around Kiev. Uh, they've been pushed back out of a number of the towns and the suburbs uh, of that area, and they basically have an unsustainable position outside the Ukrainian capital. You know, it's interesting, a number of their soldiers are rebelling because they've got frostbite in their toes because they've been sitting out in these vehicles trying to keep their motors running for almost a month, and it's an unsustainable position. And so I think what Moscow is doing is trying to cover what's essentially been a defeat for them. That isn't to say that they've got a much stronger position in the south and the west of the country, and, you know, strategically it makes sense for them to shift their focus there. But, you know, make no mistake, the Ukrainians have really done a, a just a fantastic job in defending their capital and bringing this big Russian army to a point of a real retreat. Well, let me uh, read what uh, the former U.S. ambassador to Russia, um, Michael McFaul, tweeted out a little while ago. He said, in the beginning, Putin said that Ukraine is not a real country. Today, Russian leaders are saying they have achieved their war objective of liberating Donbass. Uh, If true, this radical change in Kremlin focus is a giant victory for Ukraine, if true. But to your point, though, assuming that, in fact, this really is a real change in strategy, the specter of a partitioned Ukraine seems to be rising, that one of the Russian demands may be uh, that that in the negotiations, to the extent they are negotiations, that they'll basically say, we're going to keep what we have, and they may have much of the south of Ukraine. And Ukraine is going to be divided between North and South or East and West. Your thoughts? Well, I think that's what the Russians are hoping for. And uh, it's important that that not, you know, be the the settlement. Uh, I think that um, that's the reason that Kiev is not likely to agree to a ceasefire that basically just freezes things in place. That would be really disastrous for them. Having suffered this, basically, they're going to give up 
this major region of their coastline and and the Donbass uh, to Russian aggression. Uh, and so I think that, you know, we'll just have to see how these negotiations proceed. I suspect that you may get a temporary ceasefire as both of the parties then focus on the war in the east and the south. And, you know, the calculation will then have to be, what are the chances of militarily reversing those Russian gains in, in those regions? And, you know, once again, I wouldn't underestimate the Ukrainians because, once the threat to their capital uh, is lifted, uh, you know, they, they're going to have forces that might be able to push the Russians back. They, they push them back in the, in the south already. You know, they reclaim Kherson or parts of Kherson and, and have been able to, you know, resist pretty strongly. But I don't think that even a ceasefire in the near term is going to be anything like a final settlement of this war. As you know that you're the chairman of the editorial board at the magazine and media project American Purpose, and you host a podcast through Stanford called uh, Democracy uh, IRL in Real Life. And back in on March 10th, you were in uh, North Macedonia, and you wrote a piece that got a lot of attention, uh, predicting that Russia was heading to defeat. And uh, it was it was a very very optimistic take at a time when things seemed much more unsettled. So looking back on that prediction from March 10th, what made you so optimistic? What were you seeing back then that made you think that the mighty Russian army might actually lose this war? Well, it's a combination of things. Uh, You know, one of the amazing things about the Internet these days is that it allows you to follow events real time in ways that you simply couldn't. And so there are a number of Twitter um, uh, sites and aggregators like Oryx and Ukrainian Weapons Tracker and so forth that give you very good on-the-ground coverage, you know, of individual vehicles that have been destroyed and the like. The other thing is, you may not know this, but I started my career actually at the RAND Corporation as an analyst of Soviet military affairs. And you know, one of the broad lessons uh, that I took away from doing that kind of analysis is that the single most important factor when you're looking at a military contest like the one that's proceeding in Ukraine is actually military logistics, that it is actually extremely difficult to keep an army in the field supplied with fuel, food, ammunition, and the like. And, uh, You know, the Russians got themselves into a terrible situation when they drove initially on Kiev. They thought that they could take the city within 48 hours. You know, they had dress uniforms in their packs instead of more ammo and food. And when that failed, they all of a sudden had this enormous logistical problem because, you know, they've got like 90 kilometers to the Belarusian border, a lot of which was extremely vulnerable to attacks uh, by small groups of Ukrainian uh, infantry or territorial militia. And that's why you've got Russian soldiers with frostbite, because they can't get fuel to keep their vehicles running. And so it did seem to me that uh, everybody in the, you know, the normal press was saying, oh, but, you know, the Russians still will eventually crush the Ukrainians because they're on paper, their army is so much bigger. But uh, it does seem to me that you know, field armies like the ones the Russians are deploying don't 
decline in a linear way. They don't just slowly attrit over time. They basically collapse at a certain point because you just can't keep them supplied. So that's, you know, that was part of the reason for my feeling that at least in the north, the Ukrainians were actually going to defeat the Russians. You retreated Max Boot that the Russian military is unjustifiably continually overestimated, which is interesting, especially uh, as, as you go back through the, the military history of the Russians, which is uh, mixed. But they put on a great May Day parade, and I guess that's part of it. We think of Russia as being so huge and those massive, you know, the tanks. They're very, very impressive looking. What is your sense about why this army? I mean, I think it's going too far to say that it's a hollow army, but it's certainly maybe a Potemkin army. It, 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 yeah, certainly has, it, it is certainly not performed the way that people thought. So why have we, you know, again, we, we have overestimated it. What's your take on what we're learning about the real, the, the inherent flaws of this military? Well, uh, there are quite a number of them, and they really stem from the nature of the Russian regime. So the first just has to do with terrible leadership from the top. Uh, apparently, Putin planned this thing uh, using a very, very small uh, coterie of people right around him, didn't get good feedback really even about the state of his own military, and therefore uh, began the war with these very flawed assumptions about how the Ukrainians would basically regard them as liberators and come over to their side very quickly. So that was strategic mistake uh, number one. But you know, we're discovering all sorts of things that we hadn't quite realized. For example, vehicle maintenance. A lot of Russian armored vehicles and trucks have simply been abandoned, you know, where they stood because their wheels have come off, their tires weren't inflated. Uh, and that speaks to probably corruption within the Russian military, where money that was intended for things like uh, routine vehicle maintenance was siphoned off by officers uh, who then left their enlisted to suffer out in the field. And then I think one of the things that seems to be emerging, Max talks about this a bit in his article, you know, any good army really relies on its NCO corps. Uh, that's really what keeps an army going. And the Russian NCO corps does not seem to be very well developed or have a lot of morale. And that's part of the reason they've been sending all these senior generals in, uh, you know, to forward positions, because apparently the lower ranks, the enlisted ranks don't have adequate leadership. And so now you've got seven or eight very senior generals that have been killed because they've been forced to move up to forward command positions. So I think all of those have contributed to the poor performance of the Russian army. You, you mentioned morale, and there's been you know frequent uh, quotations of Napoleon's adage that the moral is to the physical as three to one, and this seems to be something you know that that's on display all the time. That many of the Russian soldiers don't know why they're there; they didn't know that they were going there, and the Ukrainians clearly are completely committed to this war. So this again seems to be. Uh, I'll ask you, uh, how important is this? Because I would have said before this war, that that was happy talk, that was wish casting, you know, that, that morale could somehow beat the tanks. But is that what's happening here? Yeah, well, I think absolutely. Uh, you know, one of the indicators of poor morale on the Russian side is the number of abandoned vehicles or the mm -hmm. ratio of, of abandoned vehicles to ones that have been destroyed. Uh, you know, the moment one of these uh, trucks or uh, 
armored personnel carriers gets a little bit stuck, the crew just leaves mm -hmm. uh, because clearly they uh, don't understand why they're there and they don't want to fight uh, to the last. You contrast that with the uh, situation in Mariupol, which everybody is aware is just a horrible, yeah, you know, destruction of an entire city by, you know, long range uh, artillery. But it's amazing uh, that that city hasn't fallen yet. Uh, Zelensky gave a speech a day or two ago in which he talked about that. Uh, he said that it was amazing that the Russians don't even care about their own, that they haven't been trying to recover their own dead, which any good army, uh, you know, that's like the first priority is to, you know, if you have a fallen comrade, you get uh, his body out of there. Uh, and they haven't been doing that. And he said that the stink from rotting corpses of Russian soldiers is just overwhelming in areas where they've been, you know, fighting. Whereas in Mariupol, the defenders are dug in uh, and they don't want to leave either their wounded or fallen comrades, and they don't want to abandon, you know, the civilians that they've been fighting for. It's kind of like uh, Leningrad in reverse, you know, mm -hmm, where the mm -hmm. Germans invested uh, Leningrad for, you know, over 900 days and the city managed to hold out uh, for that entire period. Uh, so that appears to be happening, and that speaks to just a tremendous level of high morale on the Ukrainian side and a pretty low one on the Russian side. Well, let's go back to your March 10th article. You, you wrote that it was uh, much better to have the Ukrainians defeat the Russians on their own, depriving Moscow of the excuse that NATO attacked them. Why is that that much better? Why is it important that Putin make this a war against Ukraine, not the war against uh, NATO? Well, there's a, a number of reasons for this. Uh, as you recall, before the war happened, you had a number of commentators like John Mearsheimer that were basically blaming, you know, the whole uh, crisis on NATO, uh, on NATO expansion. I mean, I don't want to get into that whole argument again. I don't think it's true. But, you know, there are plenty of people that were skeptical about uh, the U.S. position in defense of Ukraine, uh, and they were eager to shift the blame away from Russia. And if uh, the next escalation is one uh, involving a NATO attack on Russian forces, then that argument, I think, is going to be revived. Right now, there's this remarkable solidarity within the NATO alliance and um, uh, on the part of the American public in support of what we're doing currently for Ukraine. But I'm afraid that that consensus is going to start to come apart if uh, it's seen that NATO is the one that's pushing an expansion of the war. And that's why I think we have to be pretty careful because Putin will use that in his propaganda right away and all the Tucker Carlsons mm -hmm. and Tulsi Gabbards and so forth will be back on the air saying, see, you know, this is really a, an aggressive war of NATO against, uh, against Russia. I think the further thing mm -hmm. is that Putin is basically cornered right now He's suffered a humiliating defeat of his initial plan. It's not an existential issue for Russia. You know, the country Russia, its future survival is not uh, threatened in any way. But Putin's uh, personal uh, political future is threatened by this, uh, mm -hmm. this big failure. And if it appears that NATO is actually going after him, uh, it's 
becomes much more unpredictable how he's going to respond to this. And he's got a lot of options, most of which don't make really strategic sense. But, you know, a desperate uh, uh, leader in that kind of circumstance may be, uh, uh, you know, forced in that direction or, or choose to, to take that direction. You know, we've been thinking a lot about possible escalation to chemical and biological weapons. I hope that that doesn't happen. If that does, then I think that all sorts of options are now on the table in terms of, you know, much more muscular uh, ways of supporting Ukraine. But I'm just a little bit worried about, you know, NATO being the one that starts all of this. Well, let's talk more about this, this endgame and the possibilities of how this is going to, how this will resolve and what happens to Vladimir Putin. But let's do that after this. This is Charlie Sykes, and I want to tell you about Famous Smoke Shop. A good cigar is a reward. It's a tradition. At Famous Smoke Shop, they know all about it, American-owned and independent. Famous Smoke is your neighborhood cigar shop, no matter where your neighborhood is. As a matter of fact, Famous Smoke Shop was recently named the best place to buy cigars online by both Cool Material and Cigar World. Now in their 83rd year, Famous Smoke continues to offer the authentic cigar shop experience decades worth of cigar knowledge, a huge selection of premium cigars, and low prices that every cigar enthusiast will love. Famous Smoke Shop offers a huge selection of over a thousand brands to choose from. You'll find incredible deals on everyday cigars and highly rated classics, including Romeo, Monte Cristo, Acid, Macanudo, Oliva, and Fuente. Plus, every purchase is backed by their 30-day Famous Freshness Guarantee. So, If you want your cigars fresh and delivered fast, it has to be Famous Smoke Shop. I have to tell you, my wife and I had something that we wanted to celebrate the other night, and it seemed perfect to break out some of the cigars. I love the Macanudos, and we went out to the back porch, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. There's just sort of nothing like a cigar at the end of the day to celebrate, to celebrate some triumph or to just celebrate life, to celebrate spring. So here's an exclusive offer for my listeners. To save $20 off your purchase of $100 or more, go to famous-smoke.com. That's famous-smoke.com and use code BULWARK at checkout to save $20 off your purchase of $100 or more. You'll get your favorite cigars delivered direct from their humidor to yours. That's promo code BULWARK for $20 off your purchase at Famous-Smoke.com. Great cigar deals only at Famous-Smoke.com. And remember to use promo code BULWARK. Okay, we are back with uh, Francis Fukuyama, who uh, wrote a very optimistic piece back in uh, early March, uh, predicting that Ukraine would uh, defeat Russia. And a lot of that has been playing out. So let me ask you this, though. Uh, We're we're talking about the possible escalation, the use of chemical weapons, use the term a much more muscular response. What would that mean? This is obviously something that NATO is vigorously debating right now. I don't get any clear signals from either the Biden administration or Putin. When you talk about muscular response, do you talk about crossing the red line and sending in NATO troops to protect Kiev? What would that be? Well, uh, no, it wouldn't be that in the first instance. I mean, the real debate has been over a no-fly zone. And there, I think that there's been a bit of misunderstanding uh, about what that entails because 
you know, in the past in Kurdistan or Libya or other places, a no-fly zone, uh, you know, looked like a humanitarian uh, gesture, and it didn't involve the kind of risk that a no-fly zone uh, in this conflict would entail, because, you know, basically a lot of the rockets and bombs that are falling on Ukrainian cities are being launched from inside Russian territory. There are cruise missiles that are launched from Russian jets that are flying in Russia. There are Iskander ballistic missiles that are being fired from bases in Russia. You know, there was an attack on Lviv uh, yesterday or the day Mm -hmm. before from a rocket that was fired from Sebastopol in Crimea. Mm. And to really stop that and protect uh, Ukrainian cities, you would have to go after those sites uh, somehow. And uh, even if you just said, okay, we're going to defend the airspace over Ukraine itself, we're not going to venture into Russia, they've still got long-range air defense systems based in Russia that would be a big threat to those jets. And, you know, the normal doctrine is you don't fly unless you've neutralized those things. So, you know, that's the way that you would directly end up fighting Russia, I think, in the first instance. Now, short of that, there's lots that can be done. I think, um, you know, the administration and the other NATO allies have been, you know, trying to push hard for ground-based air defenses that could be deployed in Ukraine by Ukrainians. And I don't know the status of this. Last week, they were talking about transferring a Slovakian S-300 missile system. I don't know whether that's happened uh, yet. Uh, there are other types of air defenses that have been uh, introduced. The one thing that I think is actually critical right now is long-range uh, missile systems uh, that could that the Ukrainians could use. You know, they sank a Russian landing ship mm-hmm. in southern Ukraine, apparently using one of their own ballistic missiles. Uh, and there are many NATO systems that could do something similar, like you could eliminate the entire Russian Black Sea fleet and therefore the logistics system that's supplying the forces that are besieging Mariupol uh, if the Ukrainians had systems like this. And I just don't know what the status of, you know, those kinds of talks are about supplying, you know, much more lethal long range uh, missile systems. But I think that's probably where the discussion Mm -hmm. is focused right now. So, as you know, there is the debate that's broken out between the Ukrainian government, President Zelensky, and uh, the West, including the United States, with the West saying, we have done so much. We have given you a lot of weaponry. This wouldn't be happening without the weaponry we have given you. And Zelensky's response is, you have not given us enough. You have not given us what we need. You mentioned the anti-ship missiles, the the possibility of more uh, ground-to-air missiles. Where do you come down on this debate? Because the Ukrainian complaints are becoming more insistent that they are saying that, I think Zelensky went so far as to say in that Economist interview, that the countries that are drawing a red line against uh, providing certain weaponry are doing so because they are afraid of Russia. Is he right? Look, Charlie, I I don't know the real inside details of, of any of this. There was a long Wall Street Journal article last week that was saying that part of the problem on the NATO side was that no one was anticipating that the Ukrainian conventional military would do as well as they've been doing. They thought that this might degenerate into a kind of guerrilla war, and so they were preparing to uh, you know, arm an insurgency 
But it turns out that, you know, the regular military has faced down the Russians. And now what they're running out of is just conventional, you know, uh, ammunition. Um, They need more uh, artillery shells and the kinds of things, the consumables that, that conventional militaries use. And according to that article, at least, uh, it was a problem not because of a lack of will, but you know, NATO really hadn't been expecting to have to uh, support a, a large conventional war, and therefore, you know, the manufacturing capability to uh, do this kind of resupply uh, simply wasn't there. Uh, you know, it was being ginned up, but you know, that sort of thing takes time. So it could be that there are actually constraints like that that are you know, uh, keeping uh, NATO from doing the sorts of things that President Zelensky wants. But let me be the first to say, I don't know the inside story on this. And I think, you know, it's one of the things we will find out in time. But right now, uh, whether it's just lack of political will or, uh, you know, these more material kinds of constraints, uh, I I think it's hard to say. So you, you you wrote that we really need to pay attention to what's happening in the south of Ukraine, uh, particularly now that we're seeing this, you know, possible reshifting of the focus. The Russians have done better there. They've made more progress there. And the real risk is that a major part of the Ukrainian army could be cut off and trapped, um, that they would create a land bridge that creates de facto control of the south. And you wrote, we could help interdict Russian efforts to resupply their forces in the theater This would involve, in the first instance, attacks on Russian forces operating in Ukraine rather than in Russia itself, or naval forces that are effectively blockading Ukraine. Okay, so are you talking about NATO doing this? And how does this not involve the direct sort of World War III type escalation that everybody has been warning against? So definitely, let's say NATO aircraft or missiles originating from the territory of a NATO uh, country would involve that kind of escalatory risk. And I think uh, for that reason is probably not being actively considered, but there's other types of activities. So like I said, uh, transferring long range anti-shipping missiles to the Ukrainians that could then use them from Ukrainian territory to hit uh, Russian resupply ships and that sort of thing. I think that's something that really ought to be uh, considered. It's funny, I haven't seen any discussion of this, but basically the Russians are blockading all of the southern Ukrainian ports, including Odessa. So nothing is getting out, and that's really an important lifeline for the Ukrainians. You know, a blockade uh, is, a, is an act of war, and an international lawyer would have to weigh in on this, but neutrals are affected by, you know, these acts of war, and you know, I wonder whether there are not some scenarios by which, uh, you know, NATO could provide, you know, military escorts for Ukrainian shipping, mm. uh, uh, this sort of thing, uh, in and out of southern uh, Ukraine. Uh, and I don't know why this hasn't been talked about more, but I do think that it's something that we could consider. So I want to talk about uh, shift the focus a little bit to the sort of you know the geopolitics of democracy versus autocracy. And back in March, again March tenth, you wrote that the invasion had already done huge damage to these populist nationalists around the world, who before the attack had been very very sympathetic to Vladimir Putin. In fact, that there was kind of a sense um, that uh, the authoritarians were the ones that were on the ascendancy. 
think Ann Applebaum had a great piece in the Atlantic said, you know, the bad guys are winning. These people are winning. Uh, do you get the sense that, and, and again, we've gotten used to the, you know, the, the illusions of turning points or this is going to make the big difference, but does this feel like a hinge to you? That uh, that there is a turning point that these populist nationalists, which have been so emboldened in recent years, are now find themselves very much on the defensive. Oh, absolutely. So it's a big cliche to say we're at a turning point yeah, in history. Right. Yeah, <laughs> we're at a crossroads. But you know, that's where we are actually, mm -hmm. uh, and it really does uh, revolve around the outcome of this military conflict because. If Putin is able to get away with grabbing, you know, a third of Ukraine and holding on to it and no one can do anything about that, you know, he's going to portray that as a victory. Obviously, it won't be the kind of complete victory that he was hoping for, but it's going to be portrayed as, you know, something concrete that he's taken away from having launched this conflict. On the other hand, if he's forced to back down, not just in the north, but in the Donbass and other places as well, then it's going to be bad for him because it's very hard for him to cover up what is really a pretty humiliating military defeat. The, the argument in favor of a strong man is that the strong man can actually accomplish stuff. And uh, if you humiliate a strong man, it's much worse than humiliating a democratic you know, leader because that's what their claim to fame is, is the fact that they can do stuff. And I think you're already seeing a lot of recriminations inside Russia for why this thing isn't uh, going well. There was a really interesting uh, online piece published by a general, former General Ivasha before the war started, arguing that attacking Ukraine was a stupid idea and that President Putin ought to step down. And this was said by somebody mm. that had a reputation for being, you know, a kind of hardline Russian nationalist. And, you know, a number of uh, Russian friends of mine have suggested that he actually reflects, you know, a, a real current of thought in the senior officer corps. Uh, within the intelligence services, I think uh, it wouldn't be surprising, you know, now that Putin's gone about the Stalin-like uh, gesture of arresting intelligence officers that he is blaming for the failure, some of these people may uh, at some point decide to turn against him. If Putin somehow does not survive this conflict, or if Russia's overall prestige is severely damaged, that's going to have reverberations all across the world. Uh, and you know, particularly for us in the United States uh, and in other countries that have a right-wing populist nationalist party at work, it is going to be a real setback for them because, you know, what I think it does is it, it shines a kind of light of moral clarity mm -hmm. on what it is that these people want. Donald Trump, before the war started, said, how brilliant is it? You know, Putin yeah, just declared exactly. these two provinces uh, independent. And, you know, I wish I could do something like that. And what it, you know, really makes clear is that they claim, you know, the populace claim to represent the people uh, and uh, their power uh, is limited by things like the rule of law, constitutional provisions. And here's a guy, Putin, that actually doesn't have to listen to, you know, that, or he doesn't have to obey those rules and he can just do what he wants. And there's a huge hankering on the part of populists to have those Putin-like powers. And I think what 
you know, the war has exposed is where this kind of nationalism leads. It, it leads to much stronger forms of dictatorship. And, well, I've underestimated the American public consistently for the last several years, so you never know how this is <laughs> going to turn out. But I somehow think that this is not, you know, this is not a, an American tradition and that, uh, you know, people like Trump will pay a price for this. It's turned into a negative, but it's turned into a negative in, in French politics as well. It's mm-hmm. turning into a you know a net negative for um, you know other uh, you know populist nationalists like uh, Salvini in in Italy, Bolsonaro in, in Brazil. Uh, is it uh, Eric Zemmour? Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yes. Who, mm-hmm. who is the mm-hmm. who is the the French Trump? Has seen his poll numbers collapse. The glow is uh, certainly off Viktor Orban, and except in the circles yeah. where. He was glowing. This is what's interesting to me because you wrote back in 2014, you wrote that, you know, American institutions were in decay. The state was progressively captured by powerful uh, special interest groups. And, uh, you know, your prediction, you basically were were calling um, very presciently calling what was going to happen next. You know, the, the rise to power of a series of political outsiders whose economic nationalism and authoritarian uh, tendencies were destabilizing the entire national order. Your book about identity, because I think this does identify that, you know, this is the master concept that unifies a lot of what's going on in world politics day, the demand for recognition of one's identity and therefore clinging to nation, religion, sect, race, politics, all of this progressivism on college campuses, the emergence of white nationalism. So this has been the dominant strain in our, actually in world politics over the last several years. And I guess I sort of want to go back to, you know, ask the question. So do you think this is a turning point to that? Or is that just too big a wave? Is it, uh, there's sometimes there's, there's trends that are very difficult to turn simply by events. What do you think? Well, uh, this gets into some of the arguments that I make in my forthcoming book, uh, which is a defense of classical liberalism. Liberalism has always had a a weakness because it basically says we're not going to agree on the most important things. We're going to agree to live with each other in peace and tolerate one another despite our differences. And for many people, that's not very uh, inspiring. You know, they really would like to live in a tightly bonded community where everybody's marching in the same direction and, you know, it shares exactly the same values uh, and so forth. And I think that historically, uh, liberalism has been seen as the best alternative when people experience the opposite. Uh, you know, so it originally uh, came about in the middle of the 17th century after the European wars of religion you know, that killed a third of the population of Central Europe. And people began to say, well, you know, maybe that's not such a great system. Maybe Mm -hmm. we ought to tolerate people of different religions. It got another big birth after 1945, when it was not religion, but nation that had destabilized Europe and led to all of the carnage of the two world wars. And once again, people said, you know, maybe liberalism isn't such a bad alternative. And I think it's now 75 years, you know, uh, following, uh, you know, the last world war. Uh, and particularly since 1991, things have been pretty peaceful and stable for many people around the world. And I think that they just begin to take liberalism for granted. You know, it's kind of the framework. We take it for granted and we forget why it was so yeah, crucial. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that's why I felt I should write a book kind of defending it in itself. But then also, I think that what Putin has done is in a way to demonstrate for a new generation uh, what some of the dangers of the alternatives to liberalism are, Uh, you know, that it does lead to uh, intolerance, exclusion, and then, you know, uh, foreign aggression, uh, which then produces war, conflict, uh, unnecessary, you know, death and, and, and so forth. And people can see uh, see that very uh, vividly. So I hope that, you know, one of the consequences of this is at least to remind a whole younger generation that didn't experience the Cold War, didn't live in a, in a dictatorship, just remind them that these things still exist and, you know, that liberalism is not something that just happens by itself. Uh, you, you have to fight for it. You have to struggle for it. And you have to be vigilant. Uh, and that's a, you know, maybe that's a lesson that every generation has to learn on its own. Well, this is the great danger, an historical danger for democracy, which is that it becomes complacent. It takes these things for uh, granted. And it strikes me that domestically, the last several years have been a real blow to our complacency, this belief somehow that American constitutional order was immune from history, was immune from some of these other things. And we've, we've seen uh, exactly how fragile many of these institutions are. So uh, we, we, you know, with January 6th, with a blow to our democratic complacency here, and what's happening in Ukraine um, is a significant blow to our complacency that somehow we had a world order that was much more settled. Um, and I think that you're right. You know, this is this is you know our generation's relearning of how bad things can be and what the alternative is, and why maybe we ought to value things that seem kind of old and tepid before all of this happened. Well, I hope that that lesson is being absorbed. I mean, it's still the case that, you know, a lot of media outlets are leading with Will Smith slapping somebody at the Oscars rather than Isn't some of these deep, deeper uh, issues. And so, you know, that's, that is the problem with a successful liberal society that people then get preoccupied with, you know, their immediate economic interests or, you know, uh, with kind of celebrity status with, you know, the, the stuff that, that fills uh, both the, the legacy and, and social media, and they're not able to focus on what's really important. Um, but, you know, hopefully this is a lesson to everybody, and it will reinforce people's sense uh, of why it's a good thing to live in a liberal society. So let me ask you this, though, since you've mentioned the Will Smith, and we're not going to debate Will Smith versus uh, Chris Rock, I promise. But it raises once again the question of what is the greatest threat? I know you've thought about this deeply. The greatest threat to what is the greatest threat to democracy? Is it external, as we have been discussing? How do you rate the threat of democracy from a citizenry that is disengaged, distracted, um, not serious, and uh, fed on a diet of disinformation? You know, leave aside the external attacks. Can democracy work if you have a citizenry that has been dumbed down, lied to, misled, and distracted? Well, uh, you know, a classical democratic theory would say no, and I think you can kind of see why it's an important condition of, you know, what 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 people in that tradition used to call virtue, that you yeah. need a public that is public-spirited that pays attention to events, that has opinions, that is able to mobilize, you know, to 
uh, support uh, causes that are important to them. And I think that, you know, uh, in fact, Tocqueville talked about this, that the real danger in a liberal society is that people will retreat into, you know, the small world of family and friends and and short-term concerns and not be concerned with with public uh, events and not willing to participate. Now, I think our problem right now is a little bit worse than that. You have people like that, but you also have people that are extremely mobilized against democracy, you know, that hang on every word, you know, in QAnon or within the MAGAverse, and they're actually super engaged in, uh, you know, what they regard as a kind of public-facing struggle that they're involved in. The only trouble is it's really a struggle against basic democratic institutions in in the country. Uh, But both the apathetic and the engaged, but engaged on the wrong side, I think, are are threats that, you know, the the, the apathy threat existed during the Cold War. This Mm -hmm. active engagement against democratic institutions in the U.S. is something new. Uh, And that's very, very troubling. And I would say that that's something even more serious than the external threats, which I think over the decades we've learned to deal with. So perhaps this is the moment for the revival of classical liberalism, and your book will be very, very timely. Francis Fukuyama, thank you so much for joining us. Francis Fukuyama is a senior fellow at Stanford University's Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies. His most recent book is Identity the demand for dignity and the politics of resentment, which really explains so much of what's happened over the last decade. And his forthcoming book, Liberalism and Its Discontents, comes out in May in the United States. Um, you can also read uh, read his work um, at The American Purpose. Uh, he also hosts a podcast through Stanford called Democracy IRL. Francis Fukuyama, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Charlie, thanks very much for having me. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast, and we'll be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again.